Welcome to Table Scraps, the internet-exclusive edition of Table Talk Radio. And now, your host, Pastor Brian Wolfmuller. Whereas collective will is a term not of theology, but of Marxist ideology and socialism, be it resolved that at every point actable in the documents, constitution, bylaws, proposals, the language employed clearly speaks not coercively, but of the fellowship we have in the doctrine of Holy Scripture as expounded in the Lutheran Confessions, freely subscribed by all our congregations and pastors. That's from uh, an excerpt from a proposal to the upcoming district convention by Pastor Warren Graff. You know, Pastor Graff is my pastor. This is Pastor Brian Wolfmuller, by the way, and you're listening to Table Scraps. Uh, pastor Graff is my pastor, and we talk all the time, and he says things to me, uh, teaching me things, uh, things that I would have never thought of or never come to uh, with his understanding of the Old Testament and of politics. And I thought to myself as we were talking of couple of months ago. Uh, everybody should know this. I don't know why it took me a while to realize that I have a radio show, and so we can record these conversations and put them out there for you. Uh, so that's what we have today. We have Pastor Graff on the line uh, to talk about the upcoming proposals for changes of structure uh, in the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Pastor Graff, welcome. Thank you, Brian. Good to speak with you. Thank you. We uh, First, let's start. We have... Um, uh, given to all the district uh, conventions, upcoming conventions mostly, uh, proposals, questions, uh, uh, a presentation from the Blue Ribbon Task Force on, uh, oh, what is it? Uh, Blue Ribbon Task Force on Synodical Structure and Governance. Is that mm-hmm. right? Is that what this is? That sounds right. I will have to look up the, uh, uh, that uh, report. Yes, and Blue Ribbon Task Force on Synod Structure and Governance. Uh, the BRTF. SSG, as they call themselves, and they they have presentations for all the district uh, conventions, and uh, and you've looked over them, and you've drafted a number of resolutions. I, I want to start first, though, by uh, by asking how you understand it, uh, these resolutions overall. In other words, what's the overall import or goal as far as you can read it? Well, th- thank you, Brian. In in reading it, first of all, the just to think about the process of how we got to where we are. And I'm not real clear on that because I had not seen this material that is being presented by this Blue Ribbon Task Force until about three weeks ago at a circuit meeting when it was presented, and it was well presented. But this task force has been working for the last uh, couple years, but I believe even before the last convention. I think uh, it was authorized at the last convention for the president to give them this authority. But there's been work on this, I think, even longer. So now we have before us a form of these proposals that would change our constitutional structure in our Senate, and that would be brought in some form, I suppose, before the uh, O-10 convention. And so what we have before us has been presented to, I, I believe, two different district conventions, but then the form that we have before us now is not even is not even that form, and it's been given to us as uh, as the task force says, it's a work in progress a work in process. So whether what we have before us is what we actually need to be able to review and and dialogue about and react to for the convention, um, I don't know if anyone knows. And I think that that should be a bit concerning because what we're talking about are some changes in our structure that, depending on how you read it, could actually affect how it is we look at a congregation, what the nature of a congregation is, what the nature of our understanding of the church is, and what the nature of our understanding of the Senate is. So these are these are fairly serious considerations for us, 
We have not had opportunity to have a good open dialogue on it since we just now have the material in front of us. And I'm not sure how we go about having this open dialogue throughout our Senate before the convention so that the the delegates of the convention are prepared. That's just talking about the process side of it. And and I think there should be a, a real concern there for us and maybe even some ideas that since none of this is an emergency, we've obviously operated under the structure we have for for many decades. Uh, so since none of it's an emergency, then maybe the time pressure doesn't have to be to solve these problems, which may be problems or may just be perceived problems. Um, at the O10 convention, why not have a good, careful, open discussion throughout our Senate um, before we go into it, maybe at a following convention? That's the process side of it. Now, looking at the document that is in front of us, I think then the question to bring to bear is, you know, what what is the structural change that's being given to us? There there are structural changes proposed, for instance, about the number of districts, about the name of Senate, um, about the election of vice president, say, about whether or not uh, teachers and commission ministers and such are considered members of Senate along with pastors or whether or not they're considered uh, essentially lay people or something of that order. So there's all these things, but then you can say, but what is driving all of this? What is the organizing principle behind all of this? Yes. And that's where, as as you, I think, rightly read from um, a, a resolution that I'm going to that I'm going to be proposing to our circuit. So this is a resolution I'm going to propose to our circuit that we send from our circuit in New Mexico to the convention for our district that's up in Denver. And then the district could consider it and either act on it or not act on it with regard to what they might want to say to the synodical um, convention. But the language you read, I believe spoke of um, the, the, um, I'm trying to remember the the collective will term. Yes, yes. Right. I'll read it again. Whereas collective will, and that's in quotes, is a term not of theology but of Marxist ideology and socialism. Uh, in fact, there's a couple of things that you point out. Some of the language of the of the task force and structure. Some of the language that it assumes uh, for our doctrine and our practice now, which already kind of is a, a monstrous change in our understanding of what the synod is. One of those is this idea of collective will, as if we have, as if the churches gathered together have the responsibility to express a collective will or something like this. Yes, and, and I think that that is crucially important. It is, I believe, language that is entirely new, completely new to any uh, any language in the church that I know of. I have uh, I have never seen this language used in church documents, in church constitutions, or anything. Uh, so, if I can, let me just read the statement in the existing constitution, and then I would shift over to the other column that they have given us, which is the proposed language of the of the new constitution. So the existing Constitution says um, says this in its relation to its members in, uh, in its relation to its members the Senate is not an ecclesiastical government exercising legislative or coercive powers and with respect to the individual congregation's right of self-government it is but an advisory body accordingly no resolution of the Senate imposing anything upon the individual congregation is of binding force if it is not in accordance with the Word of God, 
or if it appears to be inexpedient as far as the condition of a congregation is concerned. That's the existing Constitution that, that we're all under. And so we notice there that there is no coercive language to the congregation, nor to the pastor. And the, the rule to, to judge all this by is the Word of God, not a, not a convention resolution, not a vote, not the exercise of political power, but the Word of God. Now, going over to the right-hand column on the document that can be found on Synod's website, the proposal, and these words are added. The, the words that I just read are somewhat there. They're essentially there. But these words are added. That the members of Senate, so that's the pastors in the congregation, bind themselves to the doctrinal position of the Senate. And then, part two, the members of the Senate agree to abide by, honor, and uphold the collective will of the Senate as expressed in its constitutions, bylaws, and convention resolutions. So what we don't see there is a reference to the Word of God or the Lutheran Confessions. It, it may be there obliquely because someone might say, well, yes, but the Constitution already says you know, to, that, that we look to the Word of God and we look to our confessions. But we're binding ourselves. We agree to abide by, honor, and uphold the collective will of Synod. We're binding ourselves to the collective will of Synod, and that collective will is expressed not only in Constitution and bylaws, but also in convention resolutions. Hmm. That's where that's where I think we can see what's going on in these proposals. This introduction of this new term, it's a term of, not of theology, but of ideology. It's a term that comes out of uh, Rousseau and the French Revolution, and then is taken up and, and really codified by, by Marx and the Marxists of the the, the, the whole socialist movement, so that what collective will does is it excludes, it, it pushes out any who will not abide by, any who will not assent to what the collective will is. So it's a way, it's a, it's a collective way of seeing things where your legitimacy, your, the, your worth, your recognition is now not according to who you are, not according to your name, but a, but rather your worth or your legitimacy is according to how you have been brought into the collective will. Now, now how, how is that different, though, than saying, hey, we all agree on doctrine? Uh, how is using the term co collective will different than saying, uh, hey, we have doctrinal fellowship? Yes, good. And, and I think that, that that is the question to bring to this, um, because what the collective will does is it says that where we find our our uh, our, our will together, where we find our fellowship and all this, will be found at the expression of the collective will. In other words, in this case, it would be at the convention resolution, according to the words in the proposal. But how are we, like I say, that's language of ideology. That, that's language of the modern world. How is it that we're, that we're taught to speak by our Lord? And we can think of what Paul said, it seems to me, in Philippians 2, where he says, have this mind. Uh, and, and the word there, uh, I believe in the Greek, is nous. It's this mind, the, the will, if, if you will. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And then it goes on that, you know, who though he was uh, in the form of God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, etc. And it goes to that he humbled himself, emptied himself out, took the form of a servant, and, and went to death on the cross. 
This is all in Philippians 2. But this, then, is the mind that the Lord Jesus gives to you and me and to all of our brothers and sisters in the faith, the mind that the Apostle says, have this mind among yourselves. Well, this, to you and me, we could, we could say, we, we could boil that down as saying, the mind we are to have among ourselves is the gospel. Jesus Christ, who emptied himself out and was crucified. It is this doctrine of the gospel. It is this, this doctrine, this teaching spoken out of the mouth of Jesus, given to his apostles, and now by the apostles written down in Holy Scripture. What it is not is a resolution passed by a convention. <laughs> yeah, so if it's a if it's a resolution passed by a convention, then it's uh, then it's coming from us rather than being received by us. Right, it's coming from us. It's being tested by us, and and after all, it, it, I mean, not that this proposal would be intended to lead in uh, in this direction specifically, but for instance, what would we do if? If a particular convention came up with a resolution, and, and again, those, that's the words the proposal uses, a resolution passed by the convention that, for instance, uh, the, the church may not baptize children. If the resolution were to pass that convention, by definition, that is now the collective will of the Senate. And you and I have given our assent to that. We are bound to that. Now, any Christian, obviously, would want to say, we're not bound to that. We're bound to the Word of God. We have subscribed to confessions, which are the expounding of the Word of God. But we're not bound to convention resolutions, and we have not subscribed any programs of, uh, of a convention or of Senate or something like that. What this does is it releases us to, to now look at all these resolutions that we would rightly and beneficially want to pass, Look at all the programs that we may come up with among ourselves. And instead of seeing them as this coercion, this manipulation, this binding that we're now under, and we have to follow them. And if we don't want to follow them, we have to, as the proposal says, we have to enter into the Senate's authorized procedures for expressing dissent. Instead of looking at all these programs and resolutions as that, we could look at these as these are nothing more, nothing other then all of us as brothers and sisters getting together, passing a resolution of how we may go and help one another, be of assistance to each other, rejoice uh, in, in the gifts that, that we all have uh, to, to bring to the table and everything. But that's a lot different than this coercive language of collective will. Yeah, I remember uh, reading, uh, I think, Dr. Kieschnick, uh, it's in Igniting the Mission, a Call to Action, a Vision for the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, September 2003 by Dr. Kieschnick, and he talks about uh, vision, uh, alignment, uh, putting people all together, and it seems like this is um, uh, this is some of this language of coercion, uh, uh, the, the language of... Um, uh, uh, not of the scriptures, not in rejoicing in believing the same thing, but... Uh, but but rather rejoicing in doing the same thing. And this is never what the Lord rejoices in. He gives us all sorts of different vocations. Even the Holy Spirit, when it comes to the church, gives all sorts of different gifts. We're not to be doing the same thing. We, our, our unity is found in what we believe. Here, here's, a, here's a quote. This vision gives direction for moving forward in one mission by communicating one message and uniting in one purpose as one people. So we find our unity not in doctrine but in our purpose. Yes. And this is dangerous as, as far as I can see. Yes, and, and that, is, that is the danger of, 
of putting everything under this rubric of a movement, where where movement brings in these words of of um, vision and and the collective will and other words of propaganda like that that are that are necessary to a movement. But but I think we should be we should be able to recognize that movement is not a word that comes to us from scripture. It does not come to us from the confessions or from church history. It's it's a modern word, uh, again dating as in, in an ideological use, dating to the the French Revolution and and to the um, the Marxist and socialist and all of that, where where a movement takes you up into it, so that if you're not participating in the vision, if you're not part of the the collective will, etc., then you're you're to be excluded. And what it does then is it robs the church of being who the church is. Because if, if there's anything the church is not, it's a movement. And and if there's any place a movement does not have place, it's in the church. Because in the church we're not here igniting a political movement and trying to get more people gathered into it and excluding those who won't fall in line. Rather, we're serving one another. And, and we're serving one another in the hearing of the gospel and in the speaking of the gospel to each other. And if we're not aligned with each other in a worldly way, in a way of movement or vision or collective will, that really has no no bearing on, on the church. Our, again, I'll, as Paul said, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. We're looking for nothing past that, nothing in addition to that. It's that That's our unity. There are, I think in my mind, two religions in the world. There is the religion of the God who is strong and must be served, and then the religion of Christianity, which is the God who comes in weakness to serve us. And it seems like our minds are never quite content with with being served by God and with his coming to us in weakness, but are always grasping for more power and strength. And it seems like that's precisely what this language of of vision and movement and collective will and all of this is, is doing. It's grabbing for this strength. Yes, in this, I mean, we remember how Paul speaks to us of, of looking at the weakness of the cross. It's it's pure weakness in the eyes of the world, and if there's anything that collectivism will not abide, it's weakness. Why? Why? Uh, t- tell us why. Um, for Rousseau and also for Marx, this idea of the collective will was useful in their revolution. Well, the the, the idea of collectivism. Um, as, as I mentioned earlier, I mean, what collectivism is doing is it's giving me my worth or it's giving me my legitimacy according to how I am included in the collective, in the in the in the whole. As I'm swallowed up into uh, the 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 collective movement, rather than saying that my legitimacy comes at the point of being an individual. Now, now being an individual again, that gets into into a philosophical understanding, but I think the scriptural way of understanding it was, or, or would be that that my worth is according to my name. That's the talk of me as a person. I have a name that you do not have. You have a name that I don't have. And, and we're to value that in each other. We're to uphold it, protect it, so that I have sinned against you if I slander your name. Well, the opposite of recognizing people with their full worth for who they are as as uh, persons created by God, and as Christians we can say as, as persons taken up by God, given his name in baptism, redeemed by him, 
so that Jesus now comes to us and says, you know, don't rejoice in your power. Don't rejoice that you have power even over the demons, but rather rejoice that your names are written in heaven. So from, from looking at it from the way the Lord speaks of it, we know him not according to his power, but according to his name. That's his gospel. That's him coming to us in gentleness and, and uh, weakness. And he knows us according to our name. What collectivism does is it, is it, uh, is it, it, it denies all of that, and it now makes me, it, it makes me worth something to, in the political terms, to the state, you know, for statism or whatever, but it gives me my legitimacy to the extent that I am part of the whole, which diminishes me because now I'm worth something to the extent that I'm like everything else in the in, in in the big thing in the whole so this language of collectivism i think that's why it's worth us noting that this is language that has not been in the church before it's not been in church documents or or um or creeds or confessions and and to see it here in the proposal for our constitution it would seem to me fair for us to say who put this language here and why what is their intent by it because the collective will does have a meaning. It, it's, it's established, and we know that it is the, the language of, of um, Marxism and collectivism and, and socialism and, and all these other ideological ways of speaking. Yeah, it's really, I mean, it's frightful, really, that, it, that, that, that Marxist language finds its way into the new proposed bylaws of the Missouri Synod. Which, uh, yes. Right above that, though, is some other language that you also contest, the language of the, quote, doctrinal position of the synod. Yes, and, and I think that that, is, um, that goes along with, with what we've been speaking about with collective will, but we have this statement in the proposed Constitution which says that we bind ourselves to the doctrinal position of synod, and then in parentheses it, it marks Article 2, so you have to jump up uh, five articles earlier and look at Article 2, but... But Article 2 says nothing about the doctrinal position of Senate. What, do, what Article 2 speaks of is the, the Holy Scriptures. I'm, I'm looking at the, the language here, but the Holy Scriptures and the confessions of the Church, the Lutheran confessions. So that Article 2 is that the Senate and every member of Senate accepts without reservation the Scriptures of the Old and New Testament as the written word of God and the only rule and norm of faith and of practice, and then part two, all the symbolical books of the Evangelical Lutheran Church, as true and unadulterated, uh, a statement and expo exposition of the word of God. And then it lists them, you know, the, the creed, the Apostles' Creed, Nicene, Athanasian, Augsburg Confession, small called articles, small catechism, large catechism, etc., and then I guess in Article 7, in the proposal that I had read, they're trying to infer that that's the doctrinal position of Synod, and yet there's no language of doctrinal position of Synod in Article 2. And then we get to ask ourselves, or, or I think we need to ask ourselves, where did we get this language of the doctrinal position of Synod, and am I bound to it? Am I bound to the doctrinal position of the Missouri Synod? Because remember, following that, it says that I, I'm agreeing to abide by and honor the collective will of Senate as that comes in convention resolutions. So now if I want to know what the doctrinal position of Senate is, I am folded into, I have to look at, doc, at, at the um, resolution.
resolutions of synod, the convention resolutions. And yet no Lutheran pastor would ever want to find his doctrine from a convention resolution. Right. A, a, a pastor ordained to, to preach the gospel and minister the sacraments will find his doctrine from the Lord's Word, the Holy Scriptures, and that doctrine has been expounded in the confessions of the Church, and that's why we as pastors subscribe those confessions. We put our name on them. It seems like there's a fundamental contradiction here in the fact that our confessions themselves confess that the councils of the church can and do err. Uh, yes. And so that the, the our, our very confessions would would have us always beware to to some sort of legalistic binding of ourselves to man's regulations and man's rules rather than uh, receiving with gladness the Lord's word uh, and trusting in that alone. Yes, and again, there's something very freeing in this. So that instead of going and having to appoint committees and commissions and boards and whatever to determine what the doctrinal position of synod is, to which we're going to bind people, <laughs> we get to do something much more free in the gospel. We get to go and listen to the words out of the mouth of our Lord Jesus. And in that way, then, what you and I as pastors teach, for instance, about Holy Communion, we, we have no interest in teaching the doctrine of the Missouri Synod. Right. For that matter, we have no interest in teaching the Lutheran doctrine of the Lord's Supper. We are teaching the doctrine that came out of the mouth of Jesus on the night when he was with his apostles, and he held up the bread and said, Take and eat, this is my body. Take and drink, this is my blood, for the forgiveness of your sins. That is in the Lutheran Catechism, not because it's a Lutheran doctrine, but because it is the doctrine out of the mouth of Jesus. So really, when we're speaking properly, there's no doctrine of the Missouri Senate, there's no Lutheran doctrine, there is the doctrine of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that is the doctrine that we as Lutherans subscribe when we sign our names to uh, the small catechism, which expounds that doctrine from Scripture, the large catechism, which expounds it from Scripture, etc., on through the Apostles' Creed and, and so forth. It seems like there's a double danger in binding people to doctrine, and that is the, the first, that if you are bound into this kind of, in a f fascist sort of manner, all, all roped together where you lose your identity in the one, that's, that is breaking the Eighth Commandment, like you said, and, and stealing someone's name. Uh, mm -hmm. But then it seems like the real kind of political power is that you're also then able to exclude people and say, look, uh, you might be Lutheran in doctrine, but if you're not on on board with this latest uh, with this latest proposal, with this latest program, with this latest movement. If you're not on board with that, then you're out, bud. Sorry. Well, and isn't that interesting that that we that we would find ourselves in, bound to a constitution which forces that point? I mean, wouldn't it be nice to to be able to think along um, you might say clear confessional lines or clear creedal lines that if we meet a Christian brother or sister. And we speak to them about our Lord's doctrine, and they they uh, know the teaching as we know it from the catechism of, of what his baptism is, what his body and blood is, what his Ten Commandments are, etc. And, and so, and so we're sitting here thinking, well, we we're in fellowship with you. This is good. Let's be brothers and sisters. Let's rejoice in this. And then we say, oh, and by the way, you also need to bind yourself to our convention resolution 
that says that <laughs> whatever it is, you know, that we have X number of districts or that, that we elect our president in three-year terms or two-year terms, and all of a sudden our Christian brother and sister is going to be wondering why is it that the doctrine that comes from Jesus of baptism and and body and blood and, and forgiveness and um, and all that, why why does this person think that that should also bind me to their bylaws? And all of a sudden we get to see that really what's at stake here is not necessarily just um, a constitution that seems to work well in a convention setting. What's at stake here is how do we understand the Lord's table? How do we understand true fellowship at the gospel of our Lord? And are we really willing to exclude someone who is in full confessional fellowship with us, but to exclude them because they will not say, yes, I will bind myself to abide by all of your convention resolutions. <laughs> you, uh, there, uh, perhaps the danger here, too, is when you are when you have this interest in binding everyone together, you, you then have the... Uh, if you're the person that's sitting there deciding how people will be bound together, then you almost have complete power over that. You, you have uh, uh, coercive uh, um, – not authority, it's power. You have coercive, coercive power over the whole group that's bound together. If you change what binds people together, then, then you can change who's in and out. You can change which direction everything is going. You have, the, uh, you have all the power. Yeah, certainly if I can get the uh, the majority of the convention voting with me, I'm now the one determining what the collective will is. And and either you can bow down to this collective will or not, but that means either you're going to be diminished because you're brought into the collectivism now, or if you refuse to be brought into this collectivism, you will be excluded. Now there's a uh, the danger is despair. I think I know something of this despair where you say, "Look, how can you fight against uh, how can you fight against someone trying to collect coercive power with the weakness of the gospel?" It seems like you got to fight you got to fight power with power, and and that if someone's coming into the church and and, and trying to bring in the language of collectivism of uh, 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 of socialism of, of this language of coercion and power, then there there's almost no way to stop it. But there is. Uh, the way that you fight against it, and the thing that coercive power can't abide by, is conversation itself. Uh, yes. And so the the thing to do is simply to bring question and conversation to this. You you even has a, have a resolution that's calling for reasonable con conversation and consideration of changes to the structure. Uh, but because power can't. Um, what absolute power? It can't stand uh, opposite uh, opinions. It, it it can't enter into the conversation because just the very conversation itself threatens its hold on that power. It it does, and and, and that is um, that that's constitutive of it because if if you and I are in the collective will, the very act of listening to a voice outside of that collective will is is a recognition by you and me that we're not legitimate in the collectivism. So so we have something at stake. Well, once we have voted with a majority vote and say this is the collective will of Senate, we now have something at stake of making sure that no other voices are heard. Hmm. That, that, that may not be by intent. That may not be as we're thinking, let's go into this and make sure we don't listen to other people. But the very language of collectivism is is... Uh, constituting exactly that situation. Now, do you see this acting itself out in the way that these uh, proposals have been uh, 
brought to the church that there's there's really just not that much conversation or that any conversation uh, that seems to go against these proposals is seen as um, uh, as schismatic or, or as dissenting a kind of grumpiness in the church well you know, I, I really don't I, I guess I wouldn't really know yet uh, it'll be interesting to see how how this conversation goes forth you know for instance at our convention at our district will there just be the the explanation of what these proposals are, and then maybe a, you know, sort of a way that we can give our assent, or will there actually be a, a give and take where both sides speak to each other in weakness and vulnerability? Will will those who have come up with these proposals be asking people to come and and give their arguments against it, so that so that as brothers and sisters we can hear this and we can come together, um, not by any coercion. But but by this this ongoing conversation, and and then the, the way it's been handled so far, where where no one's really known about this, it would seem to me. It certainly certainly I haven't known about these documents until a couple of weeks ago. I, I guess I'm not sure what the motive of the um, of the task force was in keeping this in keeping this all kind of um, out out of the light and everything up until now. If, if what we want is a conversation in our Senate and we want to hear all voices, then it seems we could have been doing that. And I'm, and maybe it has been done um, throughout the districts. Maybe our, maybe our district is somehow one that has not been able to, to, to get to these documents yet. But, but I have not heard of this conversation going on. Well, we're glad to be having it here on uh, on Table Talk Radio. And this conversation, by the way, will continue. We have this forum on our website. I don't know. Evan puts this stuff together. But there's a forum on our website where you can discuss all our shows, and this is uh, certainly one of them. And I suspect, uh, uh, Pastor Graff, that you, you would be willing also to dialogue with people if they wanted to have further uh, conversation regarding um, regarding some of your proposals and uh, and some of the stuff that you uh, that you see in the Blue Ribbon Task Force. If you, if you guys that are listening, uh, the three or four of you out there listening, if you do have uh, uh, more questions or, or you'd like to hear a little bit more about this, then uh, write us an email and we can uh, we can do this again, Pastor Graff, if it's agreeable with you and and, uh, well, and have you. another conversation. So, thank you. Yes, it's been it's been very nice, very good speaking with you. Yeah, thank you, and thank you for being our guest. Thank you for these proposals that you have. If I think if you want a, a copy of the proposals, or would you be willing to uh, uh, have send those out through email as well? Or? Well, sure. I will be bringing them up to, like I mentioned earlier, to our circuit, and and the pastors in our circuit will be discussing them, I believe. But um, if anyone does want to drop me an email, I would, uh, I would certainly be more than willing to to let them uh, take a look at them. So my my email address, uh, if if any are interested, is wwgraff. So it's my initials and name, just wwgraff at gmail dot com. Got it. I'm writing it down myself. I think I've got a copy of it. I don't know why I'm writing it down. Well, thank you, Pastor, and uh, and God bless you for um, your understanding and for giving it to us uh, and, and for uh, and for your con- congregation and family that the Lord would continue to shed the blessings of, of his word and his light uh, among you and amongst all his people. Uh, Martin Luther divided uh, all of doctrine into two things. He says faith and life. Faith comes from above. That's our doctrine, and it's delivered by Jesus. Uh, love and life come from below. We do the best we can, but we're always living by forgiveness. 
Are, are churches bound together by the faith given by the Lord Jesus? That's the most important thing. If the faith is lost, uh, then then everything is lost. And so uh, may God grant us his wisdom so that as we consider how uh, we might walk together and serve each other uh, on this earth, that we keep this as the, as the most important gift that God gives, the unity of faith and doctrine. This is Pastor Brian Wolfman. You're listening to Table Scraps. Uh, Lord's blessings until next time.